Good morning. In today's headlines, House Republicans opening an impeachment inquiry into President Biden. They're pushing back on Democrat claims there is no evidence of wrongdoing. We speak to a former congressional chief of staff. Prosecutors say the future of the Internet is at stake. We take a look at the Google trial, which began yesterday. Thousands killed in Libya after the collapse of two dams swept away entire neighborhoods. With thousands still missing, we bring you updates on the catastrophic flooding in North Africa. Can the U.S. beat inflation without going into a recession? The Treasury Secretary says that's likely, but a former Wall Street banker tells us the yield curve and what Americans are experiencing might suggest otherwise. And a journey to find timeless beauty. A young lady from Canada tells us what brought her to the NTD Global Chinese Beauty Pageant. Good morning. Welcome to NTD. I'm Kevin Hogan. Good morning, everyone. I'm Evelyn Lee. Today is Wednesday, September 13th. Russian state media reported that Vladimir Putin and Kim Jong-un had a very substantive talk during their meeting. North Korea showing significant interest in strengthening ties with Russia. We will have that more in just a moment, but first. Yeah, that is very interesting. You know, in this impeachment inquiry, if we look back, the House had already issued subpoenas for tax records and bank records in its investigation of an alleged link between Joe Biden and his son Hunter's business dealings. So, right. So the House has more, much more subpoena power now. Yeah, well, they, they're no longer limited to a legislative purpose, meaning they can demand witness testimony and even documents. That's right. And we're going to start off with the details of the big news on Capitol Hill. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy launched an impeachment inquiry into President Biden yesterday. The Republican leader says the House panel investigations paint a picture of a culture of corruption around the Biden family. That's over allegations of abuse of power and obstruction and appearing to receive special treatment from Biden's own administration. The impeachment inquiry has the potential to supercharge the 2024 presidential race as former President Trump looks for a rematch to win back the White House. Entity's Jeremy Sandberg has more on the Biden impeachment probe. McCarthy has appointed the chairman of the House Judiciary, Oversight and Ways and Means Committees to lead the impeachment inquiry into President Biden. The House Speaker says he opened the inquiry to enhance investigators' ability to get information, not reach a predetermined outcome. These are allegations of abuse of power, obstruction, and corruption. And they warrant further investigation by the House of Representatives. House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries says House Democrats will defend Biden until the very end. There is not a shred of evidence that President Joe Biden has engaged in wrongdoing. There is not a shred of evidence that President Joe Biden has committed an impeachable offense. No U.S. president has ever been removed from office by impeachment, and any effort to remove Biden will likely fail in a Democrat-controlled Senate, where a two-thirds vote is required to convict. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer called the idea absurd. The American people want us to do something that will make their lives better, not go off on these chases and uh, witch hunts. The inquiry will begin without a vote from the full House. Congressman Scott Perry says it's long overdue. I think the impeachment inquiry is long overdue. Personally, I'm on the Oversight Committee, and I think that any other citizen that had stacked up against him what the president had stacked up against him right now would already be in court. 
McCarthy says so far House investigations have found President Biden lied, but his knowledge of his family's foreign business dealings and that bank records show nearly $20 million flowed through shell companies to Biden family members and associates. You understand to this point, there's not been a single subpoena to a Hunter Biden bank account or a Joe Biden bank account or any other Biden family member's bank account. Because until an impeachment, until an impeachment inquiry commences, that's not a jurisdictional possibility. Well, it would be stretching jurisdiction to do that. You can see that the homes that the Bidens own can't be afforded on a, on a congressional or Senate salary. You also understand that it's not normal for family members to receive millions of dollars from overseas interests. Those things aren't normal. That's not normal to have 20 shell country, companies. These things are not normal, and it alludes to not only just widespread corruption, but money laundering, if not influence peddling itself. Congressman Chris Smith told NTD's Iris Tau the evidence is compelling enough to warrant an inquiry. There needs to be transparency, and the inquiry is the beginning. It's not the end of the process. You know, he deserves a presumption of innocence, but we need to look very carefully at what happened uh, during Biden's years as vice president. Uh, and, I mean, if one estimate is up to $30 million flew, went into his coffers and his family, uh, you don't do that, you know, especially with China. You know, with a dictatorship, you think working with a, a bank in China uh, is not run by the Chinese Communist Party, exercising leverage over you as vice president? I, I find that incredible. And then everything with Ukraine. 20 fake LLCs companies don't appear by themselves. $20 million is not just out of the sky. The impeachment inquiry will focus on Hunter Biden's business dealings in Ukraine. Trump's first impeachment was prompted by his requests to have Ukraine investigate the Bidens leading up to the 2020 election. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. A White House spokesman called McCarthy's call for an impeachment inquiry extreme politics at its worst. But an Ipsos poll shows a plurality. 48% of Americans say the investigation by Biden's own DOJ into Hunter allegedly selling access to his VP dad is not fair and bipartisan. Hugh Fike, the Director of Government Relations for the Conservative Partnership Institute, joins us live. Hugh, it's great to have you with us. Great being here. Thank you. So given the results of the poll that we just mentioned, is the public looking for more here? How do you think they will view this impeachment inquiry? I think they're going to view it as the normal steps that Congress takes to provide oversight. You can't continue to uncover this type of evidence and not pursue it further. So the impeachment inquiry will allow the House and those that are interested in providing oversight that opportunity. And there is precedent for a House Speaker to call up an inquiry alone here. McCarthy chose to act unilaterally, like we mentioned. So do you think that this is done just to keep his job as Speaker and appease the members of the House Freedom Caucus or as an act of legitimately seeking justice? Well, it's an interesting question, and I think they need to dual track these, these two uh, opportunities. One, they're dealing uh, with a spending fight currently, so you can't pursue impeachment inquiry without dealing with spending and you can't do a spending uh, uh, fight and uh, and you know trying to provide appropriations for the for the Congress without doing an impeachment inquiry so I, I think these are viewed as two tracks and they cannot be uh, you know leveraged over one another right and so congressional Republicans have differing views on this for example Shelley Moore Capito senator of West Virginia says she doesn't see any glaring evidence and then also GOP representatives are wondering whether McCarthy has the votes needed to support an inquiry. So do you see this going anywhere? I do. I think this is, uh, you know, conservatives in the House taking leadership and saying that there, there is evidence and the claim otherwise is not true. 
And the, so they're going to continue to push forward with oversight. So you've got basically three committees currently involved, the Oversight Committee, Judiciary Committee, and House Ways and Means, all playing pretty unique roles. So that's a lot of members just in and of the body makeups of those three Congresses, of those three committees. But I think with uh, Speaker McCarthy stepping up and saying we're going to do this, I think a lot of members will, tri- will follow behind his leadership and it'll happen. Right. Of course, the House committees were very busy investigating this. In this phase of the impeachment inquiry, it allows the House to outline the scope of its investigation as well as give notice to Biden and have conversations about it. That said, what do you make of the timing of the initiation of this inquiry here, given that it's coming at a time when allegations of VP President, VP Joe Biden benefited from his son's business dealings over while, but there's no actual direct evidence that that has happened? Well, I think you've seen a slow burn over the last uh, eight to nine months. You know, they just came back from August recess. And uh, and so the fall is going to be sort of the prime time for this this impeachment inquiry. And so what what it seems like uh, Speaker McCarthy has done is waited and and allowed the evidence to build. And uh, and now they're going to push forward with an impeachment inquiry. But again, these are these are I think conservatives in Congress view these as two tracks. And so you need to continue to keep your eye on whether or not uh, one is taking precedent over the other. Yeah, that's a very good point that you bring up here. Hugh Fike, the Director of Government Relations for the Conservative Partnership Institute. I appreciate it. Thank you. Former President Donald Trump discovers another way to get out of the Georgia RICO case. This time, he's following one of his co-defendants' lead. He's asking the judge to dismiss most of the charges against him. And today's legal correspondent Arlene Richards has more. Former President Trump is getting a little help from co-defendant Ray Smith in the Georgia RICO case. Smith is an Atlanta-based lawyer who helped Trump challenge his Georgia loss. In the RICO case, Smith filed an extensive motion asking the court to dismiss most of the charges against him. And Trump filed a one-page motion asking for the same thing. He adopted every argument presented by Smith. Smith's motion states that the 98-page indictment has voluminous defects and that it fails to allege an offense. For example, Smith states that the RICO charge in count one of the indictment fails to sufficiently allege a violation of Georgia's RICO statute. Count one accuses all 19 defendants of conspiring to defraud the United States by attempting to overturn the 2020 election results. Smith's motion argues that the charge doesn't specifically identify a racketeering enterprise that operated to overturn the 2020 election and that the charge seeks to punish protected First Amendment activity. It says the charge could apply to millions of Americans who believe that the election fraud had occurred. Trump is asking that most of the 13 charges against him be dismissed. A liberal group in Minnesota filed a lawsuit to challenge the former president's candidacy. It's the second lawsuit in two weeks to argue the 14th Amendment bars Trump from running for office. Section 3 of the 14th Amendment prevents former government officials from running for office if they have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the government or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof. The Constitution isn't clear on how to enforce the ban, nor who has the right to bring a claim. Some legal experts say the law was designed to block former Confederates who battled against the United States during the Civil War and that what happened at the U.S. Capitol on January 6 was not an insurrection. Others argue that the Capitol breach was an insurrection and that Trump supported it. Arlene Richards, NTD News. 
Turning now to the landmark Google trial, which is open with sweeping accusations of illegal monopolization. The case has been described as one of the largest U.S. antitrust trials, and today's Daniel Monahan has the latest. Tuesday was day one of a multi-week trial, and it kicked off with explosive opening remarks from U.S. prosecutors who say this case is about the future of the Internet. They accuse Google of operating an illegal monopoly to promote their own search engine, stifling competition, and thereby harming every computer and mobile device user in the United States. A Department of Justice lawyer said Google pays more than $10 billion a year to Apple and other companies to ensure that Google is the default or only search engine on browsers and devices. And with more users come more user data, which the DOJ argues then feeds back into Google's dominance in other areas like online advertising. Google maintains their business practices are lawful and argued that their search engine is the preferred option for many. The company's president of global affairs said people don't use Google because they have to, they use it because they want to. The trial is expected to feature witness testimony from Google's CEO as well as other senior executives and former employees from Google, Apple, Microsoft and Samsung. If Google loses, possible ramifications could include a breakup of the business or a significant change in Google's business practices relating to their search engine. And given it accounted for more than half of parent company Alphabet's annual revenue last year, that could have a significant impact. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Two New Mexico lawmakers are calling for impeachment of the state's governor after a controversial gun order. We speak to a state representative to find out more. And five former detectives are now facing federal charges and possible life imprisonment for their involvement in the death of Tyree Nichols. That's after the break. Good to have you back. And on the developing story in New Mexico, two lawmakers are now calling to impeach Governor Michelle Lujan, Lujan Grisham. Representatives Stephanie Lord and John Block announced their plan, saying Grisham abused her power with her 30-day ban on carrying firearms in public. We're bringing in a New Mexico representative, John Block, to tell us more. Good morning. It's great to have you. So first, would you please give us some insight into your reasoning, why you think an impeachment is necessary here? Of course. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me on today. And pretty much the impeachment is about her abuse of office. You know, we see our constitutional rights are being infringed upon in New Mexico. She signed a unilateral order to take away New Mexicans' right to bear arms, which is something we take extraordinarily seriously. On Friday, she signed an order where she said that she believes her, uh, her oath of office is not absolute. That's what she said. Her oath of office is not absolute, and the constitutional rights of every New Mexican are not absolute. And these are grievous offenses, and they are absolutely impeachable. So Representative Stephanie Lord and myself, we are moving forward with articles of impeachment, and we, uh, we expect to get de Democrats and both Republicans and Democrats to support these articles of impeachment. Hmm. Now, S State Senator Mimi Stewart said that talks of impeachment are counterproductive in working towards or debating about a solution that keeps people safe. What do you say about that? 
Well, I would say Mimi Stewart is a uh, very far left. She's a, a big ally of the governor, but she is literally the only Democrat in the entire legislature who's come to bat for Governor Lujan Grisham. Every other Democrat that has come out in, in, in a statement at all, the only thing that they have said is that they oppose the governor. We've had state senators, state representatives sending letters to the governor telling her, rescind your order. It's unconstitutional. So I think those criticisms are, are very, very small, but I do think that it's something that we need to listen to. We need to listen to all the voices, and I think this impeachment would give people the opportunity to voice those opinions. Mm. And how far are you in the process right now? I, I, I think I read that uh, just two days ago you were still in the process of drafting the articles of impeachment. And so where are you now? Yes. So right now we're getting the final drafts of those articles finished. And then we will be putting forward a petition to have all the representatives and House members and senators sign on to ask for an extraordinary session. When we do that, that will trigger uh, the opportunity to go back in session and look over these articles of impeachment. If for some reason the governor decides to call a special session or if we go in early for some reason with an extraordinary session for another reason, that would be another time and another opportunity to bring forward these articles. Hmm. And about the people in your district, what do they say about that, the gun ban that um, the governor want, uh, had and the impeachment itself? Yes, so the people in my district, they are fed up. They are absolutely furious with this gun ban. Uh, just the day after the governor's evil and tyrannical ban, I had invitations for rallies. And on Monday, I went to a rally where I saw my constituents and we all in unison said this is not acceptable. This is something that we as Americans cannot let stand because if it happens in New Mexico and the governor gets away with it in New Mexico, imagine what's going to happen in other states. Other Democrat legislators and other, other politicians of any party can pretty much say the Constitution doesn't matter and I'm going to take away your rights unilaterally. This could go to California, New York, Illinois, and so many other states immediately. And so we need to make sure this doesn't seep through New Mexico and go to other neighboring states, and we need to nip it in the bud. And I think we have bipartisan opposition to the governor's mandate, and that's a, a very positive development in my opinion. Right. Well, thank you so much for your insights and the update today. Uh, Representative John Block, I appreciate it. Thank you so much. And on the topic of guns, starting today in New York, a law will require anyone buying ammunition or antique firearms to have a criminal background check. Buyers will also be placed on a list kept by the state and be required to pay a fee for a formerly free service. The law is seen by some as circumventing the Constitution and a roundabout way to create a state gun registry. A group of gun store owners have filed a lawsuit to stop the law. New York is also charging a $9 fee for gun background checks and $2.50 for an ammunition check. This is because instead of using the FBI and national background check systems, which were free, state police are taking over. And we have updates on the death of Tyree Nichols, who was fatally injured by police officers in Memphis this January. A federal grand jury on Tuesday indicted the five former police officers on federal charges. Attorney General Merrick Garland addressed the indictment. We allege that the defendants charged today willfully deprived Tyree Nichols of his constitutional rights, 
and that their actions resulted in his death. Tyree Nichols should be alive today. Nichols was beaten, pepper sprayed, and shocked with a stun gun by the officers during a traffic stop on January 7th. He died three days later. The five former detectives now face several federal charges. Those include civil rights violations, conspiracy to witness tamper, and obstruction of justice. Convictions could lead to life imprisonment. In July, the DOJ announced a wide-reaching investigation into the city of Memphis and its police department. It's probing whether there are systematic violations of the Constitution or federal law, especially regarding the use of force. Coming up, more than 5,000 people are presumed dead after catastrophic flooding in Libya. And in nearby Morocco, the death toll rises to nearly 3,000 after Friday's earthquake. Also, China is targeting lawmakers in Canada and the U.S. A Canadian policymaker drops in on Capitol Hill to share his experience. That's after the break. Welcome back. A Canadian official has made a trip down to the U.S. Capitol, all to warn lawmakers about China. He shared his personal experiences yesterday as a target of the Chinese Communist Party on Canadian soil. Entity Sam Wong has the details. On Tuesday, Canadian Parliament member Michael Chan visited U.S. lawmaker to warn about China, and he had two goals in mind, sharing stories and discussing policy solutions. Chan has long voiced concerns regarding the Chinese regime's human rights abuse against Uyghur minority in the Xinjiang region. He also urged the Canadian government to ban Huawei, a Chinese telecom giant. And for that reason, he became a target for the CCP. In May this year, I learned that a PRC diplomat working out of the PRC consulate in Toronto had, since 2020, been gathering information to further target me and my family in Hong Kong. He says aside from being threatened by Chinese officials, the CCP also mobilized a smear campaign on social media to slander his name. Chong isn't the only policymaker facing backlash from the Chinese regime. U.S. Congressman Chris Smith received similar threats, the reason for wanting to conduct an investigation into China's human rights abuse. You know, they told me, they being the FBI, to watch out for my social media, um, watch out for other things related to finances, that they have their way. Another target for the CCP, dissidents living overseas. Earlier this year, the FBI raided a Chinese police outpost disguised as a service center in Manhattan. Authorities said that the station is there to monitor Chinese nationals, particularly dissidents on U.S. soil. In some cases, it also pressured them to return to China, including by using relatives in China to persuade them or threatening those relatives. So it's an attempt to steal away and, and uh, crush uh, freedom of assembly and freedom of speech here in the United States. Absolutely unacceptable. According to human rights watchdog Safeguard Defenders, there are over 100 CCP police outposts in active duty across the globe. That's as of last September, and the real number is likely higher than that. More than 5,000 people are presumed dead and thousands more missing after catastrophic flooding in Libya. Heavy rainfall due to a Mediterranean storm caused dams to burst, sweeping away entire buildings and wiping out as much as a quarter of the coastal city of Derna. Entity's Kostemines has more updates on the disaster. Residents of Derna inspected their devastated neighborhoods on Tuesday. Footage shows damaged buildings, upturned cars and streets covered in debris in the city of around 125,000 inhabitants. 
Several other cities were also impacted by the floods. Thousands of people remain missing, as entire neighborhoods were swept away by the floods. We heard that the dam burst and the water has flooded the area. People were asleep and no one was ready. But this is what happens. What can we do? For me, my house was next to the valley, opposite the Al-Sahaba Mosque. The whole family lives next to each other. We are all neighbors. We lost 30 people so far, 30 members of the same family. We haven't found anyone. According to local officials, hospitals in the city are no longer operable. Morgues are also full, and dead bodies have reportedly been left outside on the sidewalks. Satellite images show the city before and after the storm. According to the United Nations Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, emergency response teams have been dispatched to help on the ground. President Biden sent his condolences to the families who lost loved ones, adding that Washington will be sending emergency funds to relief organizations. More aid has also come from Turkey and other countries, including Italy and the United Arab Emirates. Efforts in the country are made difficult by the political turmoil, which saw public services fall apart over the last decade. Cost MNS, NTD News. Now we have some updates on the devastating earthquake that struck Morocco last week. The death toll is now approaching 3,000 people. It's expected to rise further as more bodies are uncovered from the debris of collapsed buildings. Rescue teams from Britain, Spain and Qatar are continuing to assist the Moroccan military in the search, but hopes of finding survivors are fading. Several international aid groups have warned that relief efforts could be challenging to help the more than 300,000 people impacted by the disaster and to reach remote areas for rebuilding. And now we want to head to Malcolm Hudson in the UK for some headlines from around the world. Good morning, Evelyn and Kevin. Unifying words from North Korean leader Kim Jong-un to Kremlin chief Vladimir Putin at their meeting in Siberia. He said Russia was fighting a sacred war with the West and that both North Korea and Russia would together battle against imperialism. Earlier, Putin gave Kim a tour of a rocket launch facility, promising to help North Korea build satellites. The strategic Sevastopol shipyard was on fire this morning on the Crimean Peninsula. Russia's defense ministry said two ships were damaged after Ukraine launched 10 missiles and three speedboat attacks on the ports. The Moscow-installed governor says at least 24 people were injured. At least 30 people have been killed in a fire at an apartment block in Vietnam's capital, Hanoi. Local media citing the city's police say children were among them. Vietnam news agency said the fire broke out in the middle of the night. The building is home to 150 residents. The European Commission is considering tariffs to protect European automakers from unfair competition with Chinese electric vehicle producers that benefit from state subsidies. China's auto exports surged over 30% in August. 8% of new EVs sold in Europe this year were made by Chinese brands, up from 6% last year. A rhinoceros attack killed one female zookeeper and injured her husband, a fellow zookeeper. She was crushed to death at the Austrian zoo yesterday. The woman was assigned to put insect repellent on the rhino's body. It's not clear why the animal attacked her. That's all from me. Back to you both.
The latest updates on Hurricane Lee, still a Category 3 hurricane over the Atlantic. Find out it's expected to behave over the coming days. And to ban or not to ban, witnesses and lawmakers clash over what's appropriate in kids' school libraries. That story and more when we come back. Good to have you back. Hurricane Lee has prompted a tropical storm warning over Bermuda. Heavy rainfall and high surf are expected to sweep across the island beginning tonight or early Thursday. The National Hurricane Center said this morning Lee was still a Category 3 hurricane with maximum sustained winds of 115 miles per hour. It is currently moving towards the U.S. East Coast at around 8 miles per hour. The storm is expected to weaken by Sunday, though forecasters say the system could remain large and dangerous through the week. The storm is also expected to bring dangerous surf and rip currents to the U.S. East Coast later this week. Yes, and now we switch gears to bring you the latest news alerts from around the U.S. The latest twist in the escaped prisoner story had local Pennsylvania residents receiving an unusual reverse 911 call. Authorities called residents, saying the escapee is now armed. Locals were advised to stay inside and lock all windows and doors. They were asked to check doorbell camera footage and to report any sightings to the police. Washington, D.C. police are still searching for a man who escaped custody there last week. Christopher Haynes fled from a local hospital after overpowering a guard. The accused murderer was caught on video jumping a local homeowner's fence. A $30,000 reward is being offered for information on his whereabouts. A Jacksonville, Florida hospital had part of its parking garage deck collapse yesterday. According to local media, Jacksonville Fire Chief Powers said the garage was searched using dogs and drones with no injuries found. He also said the building on either side of the garage would be temporarily condemned over safety concerns. The National Park Service has identified the man who died while attempting a difficult hike at the Grand Canyon. 55-year-old Ranjit Varma of Virginia wanted to do the 21-mile hike from the south to the north rim in one day. Both onlookers and Park Service personnel were unable to revive him. The cause of his death is under investigation. So-called book banning was in the spotlight yesterday during heated testimony on Capitol Hill. NTD's Daniel Monahan has the highlights. This meeting of the Senate Judiciary Committee will come to order. Senator Dick Durbin kicked things off, saying many great books have been subject to bans at different points in history. He cited Uncle Tom's Cabin, the anti-slavery novel he says was banned in the South in the 1850s. Then he turned to books he says have been banned or restricted in schools and libraries, mentioning I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings and Narrative of the Life of Frederick Douglass. Efforts to ban books are wrong, whether they come from the right or the left. Durbin continued saying so-called efforts to ban books betray America's values as a nation. We must protect our students and their freedom to read and learn. Texas student Cameron Samuels says censorship is never on the right side of history. Censorship is undemocratic. Viewpoint discrimination is contrary to the First Amendment. Senator Lindsey Graham encouraged parents to be advocates for their children. 
And to all the parents out there who believe there's a bunch of stuff in our schools being pushed on your children that go over the line, you're absolutely right. And urged parents to hold their ground. Don't give an inch on this. Speak up. Researcher Max Eaton says books aren't being banned. The issue, he says, is about school library availability. Few would say it's unreasonable to keep Hustler, with its close-up genital photographs, out of school libraries. And few would insist that Romeo and Juliet, with its lyrical allusions to sex, should be removed. According to Eaton, communities must draw the line somewhere between those two points. He mentions controversial books like Gender Queer and All Boys Aren't Blue. When parents try to read passages of these books at school board meetings, and the school board cuts them off because they insist the material is too obscene to be read out loud, I guess kids could be listening? President of Parents Defending Education Nicole Neely touched on a similar point. While it may seem politically convenient to scapegoat parents, I ask you to read some of these explicit paragraphs and look at these sexual images with your children or your grandchildren, and then tell your constituents whether you consider such content educational. As a society, we don't put Playboy in kindergartens. A heated moment of the hearing came when Senator John Kennedy read extremely sexually graphic excerpts from two books, Gender Queer and All Boys Aren't Blue, books often targeted by parents for removal from school libraries. Are you suggesting that only librarians should decide whether the two books that I just referenced should be available to kids? The Senate hearing on book bans was called as school board meetings across the country have become the front line of parents wanting to ensure their children aren't exposed to inappropriate material. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. And one wonders what academic value these sexually explicit books really have for students' libraries. Well, yeah. So, I mean, there's definitely certain content that probably doesn't belong to these in front of these young kids, but at the same time, it's probably a balance to see that nobody else, you know, uses that to for censorship in the end. I see. Yeah, and some parents draw the distinction saying it's not banning books, it's just getting them out of the wrong places. You can still find them elsewhere. And we have more coverage coming for you. Online shopping prices plummeting as inflation cools down across the U.S. Yet some items are not getting cheaper. Entity business host Don Ma brings us the latest. And prices aren't going up quite as fast, and there's confidence the U.S. won't hit a recession amid efforts by the Fed. But a former Wall Street banker tells NTD what Americans are experiencing might tell a different story. Welcome back. Here's a shocking figure for you. As much as $135 billion was likely paid out in fraudulent COVID-19 unemployment insurance claims. That's according to a report released yesterday by the U.S. Government Accountability Office. The figure equates to as much as 15% of total unemployment benefits distributed during the pandemic. It's a notable bump from the $60 billion estimate by the watchdog agency in January. But the Department of Labor says the office is likely overestimating the actual amount of fraud. 
similar fraud plagues small business relief programs like the Paycheck Protection Program. The committee says close to $5.5 billion of those funds may have been fraudulently claimed. Even celebrities like Jay-Z and Kanye West faced scrutiny for benefiting from the loans. Last year, Biden signed two bipartisan bills into law aimed at holding individuals who commit fraud under pandemic relief programs accountable. E-commerce prices fall by the most in three years, providing further evidence that inflation is cooling across the U.S. economy. Here to discuss is Entity Business host Don Mods. Good to see you, Don. Yeah, good to see you too, Evelyn. Now, how much did prices fall? Right. Uh, so according to the Digital Price Index by Adobe Analytics, um, it shows that on average, online shoppers saw about 3.2% uh, year-over-year decrease in prices. Um, so this is a lot. It, it fell in most categories on an annual basis, including sharp drops for uh, you know sporting goods, appliances, uh, electronics, and computers. But Unfortunately, grocery prices uh, seems to continue to rise, and on a monthly basis, prices were actually up 0.4% compared to July. So the Adobe Digital Price Index uh, uses Adobe's analytics to analyze uh, uh, over 1 trillion visits to re retail sites and over 100 million items across 18 product categories. And 11 of the 18 categories tracked by the index actually showed declines last month. So it could be a relief for some consumers. Oh, okay. So you're saying prices are definitely falling online. At the same time, it appears that prices for other things in the economy are not quite coming down. Yeah, uh, you're right, Evelyn. Uh, especially gasoline prices, for example, have increased significantly over the past two months. Uh, the national average for regular gas hit $3.84 today. Uh, this is up by 12 cents from, uh, from this point last year, according to AAA. And because of that, uh, we could see the CPI inflation report, which is out later this morning, or consumer price index. It, it might rise because of the gasoline increase. Uh, uh, it, it could rise compared to previous months, and economists are projecting that headline inflation might actually speed up uh, compared to last month. But we'll see later this morning. Oh, I see. Well, we'll keep an eye on that. Anything else? Sure. Um, almost 38 million Americans lived in po poverty in 2022. Uh, that's according to the U.S. Census Bureau. It, it says that household incomes decreased by over 2%. Inflation spiked in the largest single-year jump, jump since uh, 1981, and unemployment in August climbed to 3.8%, though the White House says the economy is indeed improving. And other than that, Amazon will invest uh, $840 million in programs to help entrepreneurs launch delivery businesses and pay drivers more. Funds are earmarked to pay for driver tuition and locating childcare services. Amazon has spent around $8 billion on the program since it began in 2018. But other than that, this morning, that's all from me, Evelyn. Mm, that's quite some benefits. Thank you so much, Don, for keeping us up to date, host of NTD Business. Yeah, thank you, Evelyn. Staying with the economy, there is talk that it will be possible to tame inflation without plunging the U.S. into a recession. That's called a soft landing. I wanted to find out more about this, so I spoke with a former Wall Street banker. Take a look. Please welcome Kevin Stocklin, reporter for the Epic Times and producer of the Shadow State documentary. Thank you for your time today, Kevin. You bet. Thanks for having me on. 
Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen is confident about having a soft landing here, and she's hailing data that shows that price gains are slowing a bit. It seems like the Fed is nearing that 2% inflation goal, but what are Americans in the corporate sector feeling right now? You know, um, the, the Fed looks like they actually are close to achieving this goal, and there are some reasons to be optimistic. Um, GDP numbers seem to be holding up. Uh, so that's all positive. There are some red lights flashing. Uh, the biggest are, are on the consumer side. So the consumers are about uh, two-thirds of GDP numbers uh, as represented by consumption. Um, consumers are running out of money in this country. So uh, the cash savings that they built up through a lot of uh, government grants and gifts and payouts during COVID uh, are now being exhausted, and they expect that uh, the American consumer will be running out of cash this quarter. Um, consumer debt is also starting to increase at alarming rates leading to concerns that we may start uh, seeing delinquencies and defaults. So that is a major red flag on the economy. Um, it's good news that inflation appears to be coming down, but um, you know it's still hovering around 3%, which means every year people are continuing to lose 3% of their dollars. It is surprising that some of that COVID relief money was still in circulation, and now it's starting to go away. And some good news is that Goldman Sachs lowered its percentage of a 12-month recession from 20 to 15 percent here. So, but how has Bidenomics played into all this that we're seeing in the economy? One of the major issues that we're facing. So, the Fed uh, at this point feels like uh, you know they had a very single-minded goal of fighting inflation, and they're close to achieving that, and that's good news. The question is, where do they go from here? And one of the issues that they're facing is that through Bidenomics and also the actions of the Fed since about 2008, the government has taken a substantially larger role in our economy, and it's crowding out a lot of the signals that the Fed uses to try to figure out where the economy is going. For example. Uh, Short-term interest rates are set in the money markets. This was typically an interbank market where interbanks uh, banks would trade cash among themselves. The Fed used to be a minor player in those markets. Um, they now represent 80% of the, uh, the reverse repo market. So they cannot get signals from a lot of the, uh, the trading between banks to indicate to them where the economy is going. Um, the, that means that short-term interest rates are not being set by the market. They're being basically set by whatever the Fed wants them to be. The White House says Bidenomics is meant to invest, and as that investment grows, there'll be, you know, a bigger middle class, and then also these, you know, workers will be empowered to build out this middle class. So that's their strategy. What does the yield curve look like right now, and what does that suggest? The yield curve has gone into a sharp inversion, and that is the red flag for the fact that we may be heading into a recession. The yield curve measures the difference between short-term rates and interest rates, and typically it is upward sloping. It means the farther you go out in time, the more risky uh, securities and bonds are. And so typically there are higher interest rates for a 10-year bond versus yeah, three months, something like this. When the yield curve inverts, and it has sharply inverted uh, currently, that indicates that a recession is coming. That's been a bellwether. Um, right now, we are seeing a negative, uh, a negative yield curve, which means short-term rates are above long-term rates. And uh, that the sharpness of this inversion goes back to matching about the level of 19, the 1930s before we had the Great Depression. Kevin Stockland, reporter for the Epic Times, thank you for your analysis. My pleasure. Thank you. Coming up, outward appearances fade with time, but inner virtues endure. An NTD beauty pageant candidate tells us what inspired her to find beauty from within. Stay tuned for more when we come back.
Good to have you back. A young lady radiates serenity and beauty in a world where many chase materialism. What motivates her to uphold traditional values? Let's delve into the story of Fiona G, candidate of NTD's Global Chinese Beauty Pageant. What sets her apart from her peers? I've noticed that a lot of peers and people my age around me, they're really drifting away from traditional culture. But I feel like that's that's really a shame because there's a lot of value and good lessons to be learned from traditional culture and traditional stories, history. So I really wanted to find a way to be able to spread the value of traditional culture through an interesting and creative way. This pageant was the perfect opportunity to do so. The Miss NTD pageant puts an emphasis on traditional Chinese culture. My mom was the one who first heard about this pageant and suggested to me and supportive along this whole journey and I've been really grateful for that. I grew up in a very traditional Chinese household where a lot of emphasis was placed on learning traditional Chinese values and etiquette. For example, respecting your elders and caring for your juniors, taking and receiving things with both hands from elders. I've also been taught ever since I was little Mandarin, what enabled me to gain a deeper understanding of my heritage and of traditional Chinese culture. So that's been a huge part of my life as well. Learning about all of this etiquette and these values really shaped my understanding of what my responsibilities are, whether they be as a daughter or as a student, as a friend. It just really helps create a very harmonious position in life. I also grew up hearing all about the stories of ancient Chinese heroines like Mu Guiying, the female general, or Wang Zhaojun, one of the four ancient beauties of China. And these stories helped me gain a deeper understanding of all the different dimensions and uh, facets of traditional Chinese feminine beauty. I used to pretend that I was them and imagine what I do in their situations. So it was a really fun way to grow up. I've also been learning traditional Chinese dance for a very long time, ever since I was around seven. There's a Chinese saying called xiang yu xing sheng, which basically means that what's on the outside is influenced by what's in your heart. And I fully agree with that. If you elevate yourself morally and become a more virtuous person, then that type of natural beauty will naturally shine through into your outward appearance. And as you age, physical beauty goes, but what's on the inside will never go away. So I think true beauty is what's on the inside. When you have an upright moral character and you're very morally strong, will you be able to display the most authentic and true version of yourself on stage to the audience? The Miss NTD Grand Final takes place at the end of this month at the SUNY Performing Arts Center. To watch it live, get a ticket at MissNTD.org. Oh yeah, looking forward to it. Yeah, and that level of respect and traditional culture that she alluded to is really great. Taking things with both hands from your elders. Yeah, that's true. So those Very little things can make a big difference. Mm. All right, that's all for today's program. We'd love to hear from you at goodmorning@ntd.com. so shoot us an email if you'd like. Thanks for watching. I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Kevin Hogan.